You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you looking for a podcast that your whole family can enjoy that asks the deep philosophical questions like, do trees fart? If you are, then you'll love Tumble, a science podcast for kids. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Join us as we explore stories of science discovery from butts to animals, dinosaurs, astronomy, and everything in between. You'll love these stories, and you'll learn something new. Find and follow Tumble Science Podcast for Kids wherever you get your podcasts or at sciencepodcastforkids.com. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. Looking at the gelata monkey, they are gorgeous. They're not a baboon, which I'll talk about in evolution, but features like a baboon, right? When they pull those gums back and show those large canines, like... What can they teach us? They lip smack because they also vocalize while lip smacking. And there was a study at the University of Michigan pattern of this lip smacking slash vocalization has similarities to human speech. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. That sounds like a classroom of like, I don't know, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds? It sounds like a party I want to be invited to, that's for sure. <laughs> but no, Chris, in all, in all um, sincerity, it is some of the most complex vocalizations of any primate. And that mm-hmm. is the gelata that we're going to be talking about. Uh, and so many fun, amazing facts that I learned this week. I don't know if you had as much fun as I did studying them, but that that opener of all the vocalization was like the party that was in my head this week. All the additional reading that I did because I was just so excited about this creature. Uh, primates are just incredible. And the gelata just kept blowing themselves out of the water with every fun fact that I was reading about. And... For me, obviously not a uh, primate expert, I fell in love with this creature. And for those people that know me, I, I'm more of a hoof and horns expert. So whenever we do primates, which is a creature that I I, I, I did some behavioral studies on golden lion tamarins way back in the day and stuff, but it's not my area expertise. So whenever we cover an awesome primate like this, I just get so excited with all with reading about the social behavior. I probably have 10 slides on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I won't overdo it, I promise. But and then their reproductive physiology and their uh, their foraging, they're like, they're like the hoofstock of all primates and how they eat. So 
Anyways, I uh, yeah, it's gonna be a f- it's a fun week. These are really cool creatures, and I I'm just um I I've never seen one under human care or in the wild. And let me tell you, I think they're going on my bucket list to see in the wild because I I could just I I want to be a researcher that sits out there all day long and studies their behavior. So cool. Well, yeah, I, a couple things to take away with that. Yes, you definitely need to get to Ethiopia. We're gonna talk about that and where they're from. And why it's so critical that somebody like Angie uh, comes and visits them because ecotourism is is keeping them protected and alive. And yeah, Angie, they're the only true grazing primate. So no wonder why you love them so much. I know, right? (laughs) I mean, when I read that fact, and of course, we're going to nerd out about their nutrition and their ecology because it's so so fascinating. Uh, So yeah. And then, of course, their looks. uh, The gelada is also called the bleeding heart monkey. And we're going to touch on why that is. Mm -hmm. And physiologically speaking, it it's incredible. And Chris and I did some deep dives with that as well in regards to reproduction. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I just I have to say this one is dedicated to Delissa. Uh, she's a wildlife care specialist at the San Diego Zoo. Uh, she gave us a a great behind the scenes tour, uh, showing us the gelatin monkey, and it is her favorite. And I said we would do this episode for her. I just we both been so busy finishing up teaching. I'm working two jobs. I've got the Mad About Horses podcast that's eating me up, and I'm like Angie, we need to record this week. <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost and, done with my yeah we're almost done with our teaching so we're gonna get back on it here starting this week right well absolutely and honestly after prepping this week for geladas I I want to read more about them I need a big textbook of primate social behavior because I just fell back in love with it again this week prepping for this podcast and so hopefully hopefully you'll if you're not already a fan of the gelada or of primates in general and some of their awesome social behaviors and they're just so cool and so vocal and god they're mm-hmm. stunning I, you got to see one up in person did you take some good photos mm-hmm. i did in videos and uh, delissa was great she was uh, they were feeding one of the males near us and got some great uh, social media we'll post this week some great shots for that and it was just great that, you know, she was just so wonderful and gracious at the San Diego Zoo and anybody you want to, you know, special trade. It was, it was Pippa's birthday. So we took took her there for her birthday uh, when I had to go back. And they were just so wonderful. And just another shout out to Ashana, too, who was another wildlife care specialist that was with us. Uh, but, yeah, if you ever go to the San Diego Zoo, spend a little extra money and, and do the behind the scenes. And, like, I didn't get to – I think I mentioned this in the previous podcast – I didn't get to see the honey badger, but that's okay. I'm going to go back. I was going to say, it just keeps you coming back. Exactly. (laughs) But I really just need to go to Africa and see them. I know. Yes, that is. That's also on the bucket list for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Just a couple shout outs. First, real quick, Shriyanshu from India emailed us and was very gracious. Loves the podcast. They said... In the episode 263 on snow leopards, we didn't mention India having snow leopards. And I want to correct that, but I I just want to say we recognize all the great stuff India is doing. And you just had that amazing Dole interview. Yes. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they are doing an amazing job on their protecting their wildlife. Like we did the Asiatic lion. We did the gaur. So we're definitely going to be coming back to India, but thank you for that email and and the kind words about the podcast. And then just a couple shout outs for people, uh, Sophia, James, 
and Alexander for joining us on Patreon. Thank you. That is helping keeping the lights on. Uh, it's helping keeping the website going. Uh, Rachel's uh, busy doing that. She's been traveling a little bit, but the website will be updated very soon. Uh, pays for all the hosting and everything. So thank you so much for supporting us and giving back to conservation because we do give back to these organizations. I'd like to give a quick shout out to Fanette, uh, who loves this podcast, says it's a great podcast, and has listened to several episodes and not sure which their favorite is. And so that's a great thing. I love, just like me, I have multiple favorite species. It's nice when you have lots of favorite episodes of this podcast. So Fanette, thank you so much for that lovely uh, that lovely shout out. And if you haven't already, we'd love for you to give us a five-star review on iTunes. And uh, of course, if you can do any written comments, we love reading those. And some people will also request species that we can do that way or you can reach out to us through email and join us on facebook or instagram uh, at all, all creatures podcast and we do also have a private group on facebook where we discuss more topics and details and share conservation news and just other fun animal facts with one another so it's a lot of fun yeah it is it is it is and if you listen on spotify if you don't mind Drop it a five-star review there too. It just helps circulation and, and get this information to the masses. Now, switching gears, Angie, looking at the gelata monkey. They're, they're gorgeous. They're not a baboon, which I'll talk about in evolution, but features like a baboon, right? When they pull those gums back and show those large canines, like I, I, I specifically looked. I was like, okay, what is this the canine size of a gelatin monkey? <laughs> Yes. And the only thing is so funny, I couldn't find it. All I found was in description, canine teeth, enormous. I found a vamp, uh, vampire-like. What's yes. the description? Yeah, that's, it. that's it. No sizes. Not like, oh, two inches, three inches, <laughs> 10 inches. Not that big, but no, but th- beautiful. Yeah. And I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head, though. The The face of the gelata is very baboon-like. Uh both male and female gelatas have short rostrums, wide nostrils. The males have uh, really pronounced whiskers. And when it comes to their color, they're gray and brownish in color. But both male and female gelatas have some fluff to them. And as far as being more pronounced, the males do have what they call like a, a heavy cape of hair on their backs. So they have even more fluff uh, and it's going to be brown, gray fur, and then sometimes highlighted in lighter colors, depending on which subspecies of gelata you're looking at. And we'll talk about that too when we get to taxonomy, but just a really beautiful, beautiful primate. I have like, I probably put like 20 pictures of them on my (laughs) slides Mm -hmm. because when they do, especially the males, when they do have this extra cape of long hair, uh, it really, their, their faces are darker in color and in their ears. And so the lighter fur around uh, their head and the mane really sticks out and kind of gives them like a messy hair appearance, which I'm just a huge fan of because I always wear the messy, mm-hmm. the messy mom bun. And so just a really kind of fluff look to them where the females, once again, they have some longer hair down their back, but usually not as light in color and not as like long and pronounced. But that's just their hair. Uh, mm-hmm. As far as one of their most uh, distinguished features is going to be both males and females have this 
patch of reddish skin, hairless, so a hairless patch of skin on their chest, usually triangular in shape uh, or hourglass on top, top and bottom hourglass outlined by lighter whitish hairs. And the males is extremely pronounced, whereas the females hourglass patch of red skin on their chest is not quite as pronounced unless she's an estrus. And then the patch of skin on her chest reddens in color. It's a lot brighter. And then it also, um, the skin changes on the outside and fluid filled blisters appear on the chest uh, when she's in estrus. So we're going to talk a lot about that when we get into reproduction because, uh, Chris and I did both did some deep dives on that because being reproductive physiologists, granted, and horses and and cattle and things like that, we still were like, what is going on yeah. here? So stay tuned for for more of that. But definitely having this hairless patch of skin, I don't know, I, I, for me was is a really, I'm not sure about your thoughts, Chris, but it really s- makes them stand out, I think, compared to other old world uh, primates. Oh, it's one of the most unique features of, of any primate. It, it's just, you know, I mean, the, we did mandrels and their coloration pattern is breathtaking. Right. You know, when you have the rainbow, the uh, blues, the blue. oh, that's just, and, and and that's a mandrel mm-hmm. closely related to this. There's a lot of, but oh, that patch is just so unique and it, it, it was an interesting dive because, you know, doing reproduction, it's like we did horses. We've done we, – we, we started in domestics. We gravitated to, to rhinos and elephants, but we stayed in herbivores, right? So mm-hmm. thinking of primates and these all these other taxa, it really is, is phenomenal. When you read new stuff, I'm like, I never knew that. Never. Right. No. And I've taught graduate-level reproduction, like – you know, genetics and all the most advanced stuff you can think of. And I've never run across that in my life. No. I mean, it was just, like I said, it just blew me out of the water a couple of days ago when I was reading about it and I just had to keep reading more and more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, yeah, it's a really good looking primate. And they, of course, they have a tail. Um, the tail's long and it has a cool little tuft of hair at the end of it. Uh, it is not prehensile. And we're going to talk a lot about uh, in the gelata is they spend like 99% of their time on the ground, which is mm-hmm. very, very rare for a primate. In fact, the gelata wins a lot of like unique awards for primate species. We'll talk, we'll go through all of that uh, when we get to physiology. But one of the awards that they win is they spend, they're the most terrestrial primate other than humans. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So every other primate spends much, much, much more time in trees. And so it's just super interesting. And uh, it's when it, 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 and when we get to their their nutrition and some of their reproductive physiology, we'll talk about why they're on the ground and where they live yeah. and why it's such yeah, a cool yeah. niche that they live in. But yeah, a beautiful, 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 handsome primate that I can't wait to see the pictures that you took on Instagram because you have not shared them yet with me. No. <laughs> uh, and you got to see one up. I'm a super jelly. You got to see one up in person, close and personal because I've definitely seen drills and mandrills up close. But uh, yes, the... Just the go, to, go to... Si- 
go to San Diego. Delissa will take will take you. I know. Yes, I'm. Uh, she yes. She she specifically drove me around to see the baby talking just for you. Yeah, uh, I saw those yeah. pictures you sent me, and they were incredible, yeah. and it brought me yeah. like tears of joy and, and yeah. a little bit a little yeah. bit of jealous too. <laughs> I miss yeah, working yeah. with those guys. But yes, I mean, gosh, the bleeding heart monkey or gelata, I mean, definitely lives up to its name. That bleeding heart is just incredible. It's unique. Yeah. I could see why she fall, fell in love with them. Uh, Size-wise, okay, really quick. Uh, the, the males are bigger than the females. 20 to 30 inches body length. That tail is another 12 to 16 inches. So up to 75 centimeters body length and the tail up to 40 centimeters long weigh 28 pounds to 47 48 pounds so that's 13 to, to 20 kilograms uh range so you know decent looking size primate now with angie saying all of that that they are on the ground they're more terrestrial they're grazers they can do that in africa because they're in the high plateaus of ethiopia Right, yeah. they're up high, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. five thousand feet up to fourteen thousand or fifteen thousand feet in the high plateaus. In the Simeon Mountains is, is where a lot of them live in north central Ethiopia, and then there's a small population uh, further to the east. So when you look at their distribution, and then you look at their physiology, and, and you're gonna, in evolution, they've been living there for hundreds of thousands of years. And this is the cradle of human civilization. This is really where, where Homo sapiens came from, this part of the world in Ethiopia. So our, our close relatives in the mountains, that, that's part of the, the reason they can stand the ground and not have to worry about lions picking them off or leopards to an extent do but not as much right yes and they actually have an interesting relationship with the ethiopian wolves which we need to cover mm-hmm, those guys mm-hmm. soon uh where they're not as fearful of them they'll they'll sometimes be hanging out with them while they graze yeah. but yeah researchers said that if they then see a domestic dog they do a lot of alarm calling and run and uh all that kind of stuff so it's really interesting yeah. Oh, when they pull those lips back and you see those vampire teeth, like Jesus. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right. So if if we haven't given you enough reasons to care, uh, one of the things I talked about is this is the last of their genus. Yes. Yeah. Right. They're not yeah. baboons. They're not mandrels. They're their own genus. Uh, their relatives used to spread all the way over to India, which we mentioned earlier in the podcast, across into Africa. But now today, they're just in this one pocket, and they're a very unique animal. It is. When, when, I, when you pull up the map, it's one thing when you read, okay, they're in this region and are uh, in this range and that. But then when you pull up a map, and of course, Africa is a huge con- continent, but you pull up a map and just see this little sliver of pocket of where both subspecies of the gelata monkey live. It, it it's a little disconcerting, you know, uh, as far as just this like certain sliver. But with that being said, in their ecological niche, which they have evolved over millennia to live there and be very, very specialized primates to eat these grasses and tubers, which, will, like I said, we'll talk a lot more on nutrition, that their ecological role is got to be huge in this area. 
So they feed on grass mostly, like 90% of their diet is grass, like a horse and a cow, grass, not a browser, nothing like that, like a grazer, grazing on grass. The gelatas most likely have a huge significant effect on all the plant communities in that area where they eat. They dig for roots and tubers. uh, And so when they're doing that, they're aerating the soil and they're doing a lot of like landscape turnover as far as minerals go in the soil as well. So so their role cannot be overlooked as far as how they're shaping the plant communities. And then they do consume some seeds and they will eat fruits when available and things like that and flowers. So uh, they also has a role as, and not a huge, not as big of a role, but there's some seed dispersal going on as well. So just really, really important in that area as far as a grazer is concerned, which is weird to say grazer and monkey together. I'm used to saying that with all the hoofstock species that we've covered. Mm-hmm. We always talk mm-hmm. about that. It's how they shape the plant communities. But yeah, um, the, the gelata is definitely doing that. So you, and if you pull them out of the ecosystem in that niche where they evolved, you would definitely see decline in certain species of plants and issues with that as well. And Chris and I being mammal physiologists, we always talk about the impacts of animals and animal extinction rates are increasing and we're, mm-hmm. we're in our sixth mass extinction. And, but yeah, I, we can't forget about the plants and that obviously that's not our area of expertise. And so mm-hmm, almost mm-hmm. Be, it would be fun to get a, a plant person on here to talk about, um, or a fungus person that know, I mean, a lot of other species, not just animals are in big trouble. So, yeah. It, uh, yeah, yeah. And so we know that the gelata has a big role in several plant species. And so thus, if you if you just don't fall in love looking at them <laughs> because they're mm-hmm. so they're so cool looking and with their physiology, then definitely fall in love with what they're doing for the plant communities where they live. No, they are. They're they're critically important. And I'm gonna talk about the indigenous people there and and how important they are to them. Just really quickly, so we're gonna focus in on Ethiopia. Very interesting country. My late brother, who passed away, you know, over ten years ago, actually visited Ethiopia. One of the few places in the world he just felt super drawn to. To there in in Mongolia, and he'd been all over Europe and all over the world uh, doing photography. But Ethiopia was just one he was really, really wanted to go, and he did uh, a few years before he passed away. I got to get there. I have not been there. They actually are, they have one of the greatest horse and donkey populations in the world. They're actually, mm-hmm. they have the greatest donkey population in the world. One of the top horse populations in the world. One of the oldest countries, free countries in the world. Uh, they have over 126 million people live there. It's East Africa, just north of Kenya. Uh, just an incredible country with some incredible species. So when you talk about the gelata specifically, the indigenous peoples in the mountains there are very protective because it's the Guasa grasslands in the Central Highlands. And they're very important to indigenous communities for many reasons. And so urban development is one thing that they're fighting, development of roads and things through these areas because it does damage these grasslands that these communities depend on for their livelihoods. 
Plus, they are home to geladas. They're home to Ethiopian wolves and mm-hmm. other wildlife. Now, the indigenous peoples there for hundreds of years have managed these grasslands. Uh, there's a communal management system. So there's a, a headman that they have historic rights over certain natural resources, which are these grasslands that they use to, to make thatch roofs. Uh, they graze livestock there. And thankfully, 20 years ago, Ethiopia considers this a protected area. They also make it for rope weaving. Uh, so they, you know, fuel. So grass, grasses is fuel, uh, clothing, things like that. Now, COVID hit them hard, and there also was a civil war in in parts of Ethiopia. It was known as the Tigray War that broke out in 2020. This was a revolutionary group trying to break break away from Ethiopia. So there was uh, deaths of over 600,000 civilians. We never hear about this stuff, and and I never knew this was going on. in this part of the world where I live in New Zealand and and the United States, you weren't hearing about this, this war going on there, but there was this conflict that impacted Guasa and these grasslands and the peoples there and the wildlife there. So uh, it was, it was really, really sad, but thankfully it was just two years later, they did settle and have a peace agreement. So everything's calm and quiet there. The damage to the grasslands, the government poured in about you know, close to almost a million dollars U.S. to help the peoples um, and strengthen conservation projects. So where they do have nurseries, they're growing seedlings and, and repatching where a lot of this damage was. So conservationists are and, and the locals there, the way forward is... Really, what they're saying is this story, and the reason I, I picked this one this week is traditional conservation models. And Angie and I have been talking about this the last couple of years. Uh, that's like the establishment, uh, the establishment of national parks. Europeans coming in, or Americans coming in, or saying, "Oh, you need to, you know, protect your your animals." And here's da 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 da, telling people how to do it. What they're saying is get the 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 locals involved, the indigenous communities involved in conservation, and it's working. And so ecotourism is a big one, like you talked about. And what it made me think of was, was Nuklu Farm when we did the Amir Falcon. And he was talking about that parts of India where the locals who had been poaching and you know tearing down trees, things like that, they have educated, gone in and educated the locals. The locals are now protecting that area of the forest where these Amir falcons come in and roost while they do this mass migration to Africa. So conservation is local. I've been giving my wildlife talk quite a bit lately. And if anybody's interested, just a quick side note, if you want me to speak to your students, if you're listening anywhere, I'm more than happy to do a, a Zoom call anywhere around the world. Uh, and reach out. I know Angie would too. Oh yes, me too. Yeah. Sign. I'm, I'm over here raising my hand. Ooh, ooh, <laughs> yeah. ooh. Can I do yeah. it? <laughs> yeah, but I've been giving this wildlife talk and and around New Zealand, and I'm like, yeah, it's great. It, it, the the like you said, the sixth mass extinction. The news isn't great. Uh, the data's bad, but there is a lot of hope, and conservation starts locally. 
wherever Absolutely. you live. Yes, 100%. It starts, it starts in your own backyard, mm -hmm. in your own communities, in your own cities, towns, villages, wherever you live. If you can serve around you, then if everybody does that around the world, we'll be able to protect our wildlife, whether it's the birds down to the microbes in the soil. Um, you know, that's, that's the way forward. And that's what this article was talking about. It's, it looks good for this community or, or this area of Ethiopia that even though the data with the gelato monkey isn't the best, their numbers are going down. There is concern. Uh, I think the future's bright for that part of the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course that, that part of Africa is near and dear to my heart. Cause it's a little South of there. Uh, and Northern Kenya is where the Grevy zebra is, which we mm -hmm. still need to cover on the podcast. <laughs> so yes, we'll, yes, we'll get yes, there yes. someday. Well, did we talk, we, we said we were going to do like, uh, the plain zebra, but we'll save the Grevy's for the last. Yes. Yes. The Grevy's. Okay. Yes. I'll, I'll be too emotional. I can't, I can't, I can't uh, talk with that, about them without missing them and loving on them, yeah. but yeah. we definitely need to cover a species of zebra soon. So okay. maybe the plains we'll or do the mountains. Plains or mountains, you decide. And then if you see Grevy zebra, no, that's our swan song. <laughs> we'll give you plenty of warning <laughs> with that. Well, yeah. although I do want to interview a few uh, specialists, I don't know. We'll see. That's yeah, why this we'll podcast we'll is see. fun. It's a passion project. We we yeah. take one one day at a time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, no, I think this is a good spot to take a break. I have, I, I've talked about the largest primate ever. I've got some more data on one that might be taller, maybe not quite as robust, but maybe Bigfoot is real. I don't know. We'll see. We get back from the break. Be right back. Hey there, fellow super moms. This is Angie from All Creatures Podcast. Are you juggling a million things at once like me? Between work and podcast deadlines, after school sports, taking care of the kids, and of course, all of our pets. Finding time to cook nutritious lunches and dinners can feel like an impossible mission in my house. But guess what? I've found the ultimate lifesaver, Factor. Picture this, delicious, chef-crafted meals delivered right to your doorstep, ready to heat and eat whenever you need them. No more stressing about what to cook or spending hours in the kitchen. With over 35 mouth-watering options each week, including keto, Calorie Smart, Vegan, and more, Factor has something for everyone in the family. My husband and I are loving the vegan options, and we are also enjoying their amazing add-ons, from snacks to yummy smoothies. Factor isn't just convenient, it's budget-friendly too. So say goodbye to expensive takeout, because Factor meals are dietitian approved and cost less than dining out. Plus, you can customize your plan to fit your busy schedule and pause or reschedule deliveries whenever you need to. And the best part? Zero prep, zero mess. Just pop a meal in the microwave and boom, lunch or dinner is served. So choose Factor because every super mom like you deserves a break from meal planning without compromising taste and health. And we all need more quality time with the creatures we love. Head to factormeals.com slash creatures50 and use code creatures50 to get 50% off. That's code creatures50 at factormeals.com slash creatures50 to get 50% off. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. Welcome back. We've done primates before. Uh, just to run through this real quick classification. Mammals, 5,500 species. we got plenty to go in this podcast. Primates, over 600 species. Subspecies are increasing. So plenty of monkeys to, to cover. Yay. Yeah, uh, the gelata monkey suborder is Haplorhini. These are our dry-nosed primates. There's 305 species of that. So you're not just talking. This is us. We're dry-nosed primates, gorillas, orangutans, gibbons, and the old and new world monkeys. The other, uh, the wet nose is the lemurs, lorises, and uh, those ones. The family is Circopithecidae. The old world monkeys. So this is the largest family of primates. We've covered a few of these before, but 24 genera, 138 species. But remember, the gelato monkey is its own genus. So out of that 24, they're all by themselves. Right. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So they are the genus Theropithecus. The tribe, so they're most closely related to baboons which you'd think, the mandrills and drills, uh, the mangabees, the crested mangabees, and the macaques. So that's their their closest old world monkey family, which would make sense, right? Uh, we still have to do a baboon at some point in the future, maybe next year, but this is you know baboon-like like the mandrill, which we've covered. And their species name is Theropithecus gelata. And then you do, like Angie said, had two subspecies, Theropithecus gelata gelata or Theropithecus gelata obscurus. And that's the eastern gelata, southern gelata, or Hegelin's gelata. So the northern and the southern, that, that's probably the good way to remember it. Evolution, going back, we all go back 55 million years ago, earliest primates. Some say maybe before the, the fifth mass extinction. We can go back either earlier than that, like up to 90 million years ago. It just depends on the data, and that's always emerging. Earliest primates look like a fat squirrel. For <laughs> uh, simians, you know, like today's lemurs, very, very, those are the earliest primates. And then the haplorhine primates, these dry-nosed primates diverge from the, the lemurs and them about 55 million years ago, roughly, right? After that big extinction. I've said this before, old world monkeys, before 12 million years ago, we don't have a lot of data, not a lot of fossils, you know, again, dating back 50, 60 million years ago, uh, a lot of that is probably genetics and what they're finding out. That's why things are changing constantly. So our oldest old world monkey fossil only dates back 12 million years and it's a couple teeth. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to tease out the the families and everything uh before that so when new world monkeys i know when we talked about it ages ago they think it was those vegetative rafts that went from africa to south america 
right? I know Madagascar, that's how animals got there. And then some of the other ones uh, got over to South America. So those are new world monkeys. Old world monkeys uh, been in Africa, Europe, Asia for a long time. Now, Gelata specifically, the genus Therapithecus, the oldest fossil we have is 4 million years ago of ancient ancestors. Don't have an exact date of when Gelata has emerged, but it's it's been hundreds of thousands of years. They do know that they've lived in the Ethiopian hi- highlands for that long. So... It's incredible, yeah. Yeah, and I'm going to talk about their adaptations at living at altitude. Because when you're living up to 15,000 feet, I remember when I went to a conference years ago, Keystone, Colorado, 7,000 feet, and I was dying going up and downstairs. <laughs> <laughs> the air's so thin. So when you're talking 15, double that, you know, the mm-hmm. oxygen up there. So we'll talk about that in a second. So they, but they've, they've adapted to it, right? They've adapted to this terrestrial lifestyle, eating grasses, and living at altitude. It's just bonkers. Don't even yeah. say it like that. You know, yeah. if you think of the way, and the way you think of a typical primate, like in the, you know, the tropics or Jungle. subtropics, yeah, yeah, yeah. in trees, yeah. you know, it's just, it's crazy. At sea level, like bouncing around mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. here you've got one of our relatives just hanging out up in the mountains. <laughs> All right. Before the break, I had to find it because I'm like, Angie, we haven't recorded in a couple weeks and... I haven't done any like crazy animals in a while because I've covered a lot of the you big ones, like love the your fun big ones. Crazy animal. Oh <laughs> my god! Someday somebody's gonna make a movie and show all the creatures that you've talked about, like uh, AI or something, and then hopefully they'll give you credits because I think it's a brilliant idea. It's just not in our wheelhouse. Are you listening? Disney Plus, Nat Geo, <laughs> yeah. Apple TV we have, Plus. We have a lot of friends over there. We've been uh, we've been interviewing a lot of a lot of their teams. So I, we should drop that hint to them. Uh, Doctor Darren Nash, yeah, remember uh, Prehistoric <laughs> Planet? Yes, uh, you know you need us on that. All right, Gigantithepicathicus. I didn't say that right. Blackie. That was the the large orangutan looking, nine point eight feet tall, ten feet tall. Weighs up to 1,200 pounds, uh, massive primate, and giant hominid that died out a couple million years ago. The next biggest, that's what I found, because I was like, well, I've already covered that one. The next biggest. Yes, I'm waiting with bated breath. The next biggest is actually a close relative of ours, Angie. Mega Inthropus, so Mega, mm-hmm. stood nearly, drum roll please, <laughs> almost eight feet tall. And it looked Whoa. semi-human. Yeah, it's, from, yeah, it's massive. <laughs> it's it's a mix between, you know, what oh, you would. Man. Bigfoot, you, would, you, you called it. Yes. Min- yeah. I said Bigfoot is alive. It, mm-hmm. it lived a couple million years ago in Indonesia, South Asia. Massive, massive primate slash hominid middle of the ground. So... We had hobbit-like humans that died out 50,000 years ago, and then you had Bigfoot was real, living in the same part of the world in Indonesia, but it was a couple million years ago. 
Crazy. I love it. You you brought it with the Bigfoot facts this week. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to do Bigfoot one day. What the hell is Bigfoot? All right. <laughs> oh, anyways. All right. Uh, sticking to facts. Some fun facts. Uh, Jalan had said in, under human care, 30 years. In the wild, 20 years. And I've seen in between. The wild's a harsh mistress. It's a harsh place. It's it's really difficult for these animals to survive out there. And 20 years is, is a pretty good life for a small primate. 30 years is a really good life uh, for a lot of these primates. Uh, some, I, I have differences between old world monkeys, new world monkeys. Again, just as a reminder, I mean, maybe this goes into evolution, but uh, old world monkeys, Africa, Asia... And we also have uh, the ones in uh, Gibraltar, right? Uh, Southern Mm -hmm. Europe. New world monkeys, the Americas. uh, New world monkeys get the little, little tiny ones, you know, like tamarins, golden light tamarins. That's how I got my, that's, that's my, my primate start and finish pretty much there. (laughs) Uh, 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 New world monkeys have that prehensile tail. So swinging from the trees, you know, grasping, uh, the old world monkeys, non-grasping tails, so they use that to, to help balance. New world monkeys have 12 molars. Old world monkeys have eight. New world monkeys don't have fingernails. That's interesting. And just uh, some other differences, but that's that's kind of the difference between the two. What I really wanted to talk about, and then I'll let Angie go because I'm sure she's got some fun facts, especially nutrition, because I knew you were going to dork out about it. I did too. I did some digging, but... This high altitude. Do you think they have more hemoglobin than yes? Monk- you would think, right? <laughs> right, that's what I would you- think. Yes. Okay, so hemoglobin carries oxygen in the blood, right? So, don't we we produce more red blood cells when we're at altitude, right? To carry more oxygen. So when they go and climb Mount Everest, they spend some weeks adapting to high altitude. That's why. I was going from, I was in South Carolina at the time at Clemson, sea level to 7,000 feet, and I felt like I was going to die. It was right before I moved to Florida. And people that train to climb K2, Mount Everest, whatever, they go spend time at altitude so their blood can can adapt. But geladas don't. Hmm. They don't. They have the same. Their hemoglobin's the same if they're at altitude or at sea level. So they think that their hemoglobin's hemoglobin is specialized to carry more oxygen, and it's just they don't need more of it. It's just what they have is more specialized to carry more oxygen to their tissues. So there you go. That's that's the only thing I could find about high altitude adaptations was. Hmm. Okay. They, you would think they, they've been there for hundreds of thousands of years, but they actually don't, their blood doesn't change like that. So like maybe their, the hemoglobin, that protein molecule, uh, has more spots for the, doesn't, there's not Binding. more of the molecule. There's just more spots for the oxygen to bind. Yeah. Yeah. So I think more, that's maybe where the more iron there. on it to bind to it. I don't yeah, know. It's interesting. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was, I was like, how in the heck do they survive at, at altitude? Hmm. Um, I know we've covered that in other species or like how do whales dive deep? Uh, how does the horseshoe crab heal itself with that special crazy blue blood? All those things that we always look at as adaptations of physiology, but 
Yeah, no, that was interesting. And then uh, the other unique feature with them is their diets and how they just eat grass all day. Right. And so when you look at the gelata and their grazing adaptations, as they're a grazer, right? So they eat mostly grass. Is super cool fun fact about the geladas is they have the most opposable thumb index finger combination than any other primate. So those mm-hmm. first two digits has the most, the highest opposability of any other primates, except for humans. And it allows them to pick individual blades of grass so they can sort good from bad or the seed from the tuber, just very, very fine plucking. And they can do this during the wet season, the dry season, and they can dig efficiently to get the roots and the tubers if that's desired, depending on what time of year it is. And I'll talk more about that. So really fascinating. And that's, you know, maybe as Chris mentioned how they are their own genus. This could be some of the reasons of why they are so different and they, they're a standalone group. Really, really incredible. Mm-hmm. And then the other really unique thing about the gelata is Chris and I talked about, we typically think of monkeys swinging from the trees or at least in tropical forests. Well, not the gelata. They actually have a specialized gait, so movement gates on the ground, not in the trees, uh, called a shuffle gait that they use when they're feeding this grass. And what they do is they are the kings and queens of the squat. I mean, they these are some fit monkeys because they basically mm-hmm. spend their whole day in a squat and then they move bipedally from side to side, sliding their feet without changing their posture. And it, they do it very fluidly as they're sorting and picking grass and eating it. And it's just really fascinating. I was watching several videos because there's awesome, awesome footage on YouTube from National Geographic and other groups just watching these guys graze. And once again, if you know me and you've been following the podcast for years, you know that I love horses, cattle, uh, both uh, domestic and exotic species of hoofstocks. And I I could just watch them eat all day. Like that's my happy spot, hearing them like munch, (laughs) munch plant material. Uh, And so it was really cool just to watch the geladas on the video footage that I was able to find feeding. But what they do is they do the side shuffle step uh, it keeps, keeps them in a perfect posture. Oh my gosh. It makes me with my hunchback look, uh, <laughs> I need to do some more yep. squats. I'll put it that way. But yeah. And they just, they just, they just kind of sh- crab shuffle, uh, the shuffle gate across, um, across the landscape to get the different pieces of grass that they want. Really, really cool. And then interestingly enough, because they spend a lot of their times in this squat position, they also have like, uh, extra calluses known as reinforced buttocks, uh, ischio callosites, uh, which are basically calluses on their rump, which comes in handy when they're spending <laughs> yep. their, their whole time. Yeah. Basically squatting or sitting on their rump foraging for grass. So, uh, some pretty cool specialized, um, fo- grass foraging adaptations that we definitely don't see in other species of baboons or other, uh, other primates species that they're closely related to. Well, when you said that about the, the the opposing fingers, I was like, I can't even pick a blade of grass barely, you know? Well, I so, know. Isn't yeah. that, it's incredible. I mean, mm-hmm. they're like selective. And I, <laughs> funny you should mention picking grass, Chris, because I had to spend mm-hmm. uh, a lot of my um, 
PhD dissertation um, and my master's, I think, too, now that I think about it, uh, going through the big fields we have in Ocala, mm-hmm. picking blades of grass for sample analysis. So you have Yeah, to, I remember sending you out mm-hmm, there. Get out there. And pick. Yes. <laughs> but you can't just like pick any grass. You have to do it very scientifically. And I would mm-hmm. walk a W shape in, in the, these 40 acre pastures and trying to make sure I sampled evenly. And and it's when the grass is green, it's kind of easy. But during our dry season here in Florida, it's, it was often hard hard to find similar or good samples. So yes, I, uh, it's not as easy as it seems to just pluck up, you know, blade after blade of grass Mm -hmm. um, without Mm -hmm. getting a lot of other unwanted plant material in there. So kudos to the gelatos, that's for sure. But yeah, that's the thing. The gelatos Mm -hmm. are pretty much some paper said exclusively herbivores, Mm -hmm. um, with 90% of their diet being composed of grass. Mm-hmm. grass folks. I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, they're eating a lot of grass, right? To make sure they're meeting their caloric uh, demands their fat protein, those nutrient requirements, just incredible. Now there was a recent study of gelatas in Gusas, uh, which is a pristine gl- grassland about 11,000 feet above sea level. And that uh, group that lived there was observed eating ants, snails, and desert locusts. But it's insect eating in the gelata is very, very rare. Yeah. Uh, and it can happen once in a while during the dry season, but typically it's frowned upon. They don't, that's not their choice. Uh, so during the wet season, July and August, 93% of their diet is green grass blades. Okay. Which is, that's a lot of picking, if you will. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now in November, when the grasses have grown and they have seeds getting ready to reproduce, uh, the seeds will make up about 70% of the gelatas diet. In the dry season, which is January and February in Ethiopia, uh, about 67% of their food is going to be grasses, but they'll also add in uh, tubers, uh, roots, uh, flowers, and stems throughout the year as needed. So... They are definitely specialists, uh, but if they have to, depending on the season, they can generalize a little bit off the grass to different parts of the grass or fruits and seeds and flowers when available, but definitely, definitely primarily a grazer, which once again, the more I was reading, I'm like, these gelatas are like ungulates. I mean, they're honestly like a lot of their their behavior and their mm-hmm. diets. It's it's more ungulate-like than primate-like, which is just, to me, was just mind-blowing. Uh, they effectively chew their food. One researcher said that they're like just as efficient at chewing as a zebra, which I'm like, what? what? So... So how? crazy. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I just With those I just, vampire teeth. Well, how? <laughs> I just love it so, so much, yeah. right? Uh, it's just incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of this, because of their grazing, their dietary grazing behavior, the gelata is the most terrestrial primate spending time on the ground compared to a human. Mm-hmm. So I just, yeah, they're just very unique, right? Oh my gosh, they spend... 99% of their time on the ground, which, I mean, they do have to forage a lot, but, uh, it's not that they can't climb a tree, uh, when threatened, uh, or if there is a tree around, they, they can climb trees. They're just not very good at it. Uh, mm-hmm. and they need to graze a lot. So they've just spend a lot of time on the ground. 
Now, because they do live in somewhat of a mountainous, rocky terrain, uh, they've been observed spending time on small ledges or rocky cliffs if they need to escape a predator. So they are agile, but that's, you know, they're definitely, you're not going to find them in a tree like every other primate I can think of. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah. I can't think of one. It's just all ground. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, the deep dives I went into was just, okay, how do they eat this high fiber diet, right? So it's a lot of, it's, we see primates eating lots of other things. So the research goes into looking at fiber digestion. So they're looking a lot at the microbes in their hindgut. Mm -hmm. So like our herbivores, they're just like horses or equids, zebras, hindgut fermenters. So all of that grass goes through the stomach, small intestine into their cecum or a, it's a large colon. And that's where these microbes mix and digest and break down the fiber that they normally can't digest in their stomachs or small intestine. So they get as much nutrients as they can out of it. So they are, they are herbivores, but they're primates. It's crazy. It's just, and not only herbivores, but like grass specialists. Like that's yeah. to me just what's like, wow, yeah. so mind blowing. Yeah. So cool. Now, that's why I love this podcast, Chris. Yeah. I'm in love with our podcast because just, just learning fun facts every week that are just, they, this, this one excited me. I mean, we all know that I'm an ungulate nerd, so that's probably mm-hmm. why. But when we get to their social behavior, no, they, I mean, the complexities and the uniqueness of their social behavior is stunning as well. Well, once you tell the listeners that they grow horns, it's just all over, right? (laughs) (laughs) Antlers. (laughs) If they have horns or antlers, oh my God, it's all over. It is. Uh, No, they don't. Instead, the females grow blisters on their chest. We'll we'll get there. there. We'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. let let me. uh, Crazy talk. Last bit for me is prayed so we do talk about we did talk about earlier that they can uh, they're on the ground leopards hyenas yeah they do hunt gelatas but it is rare they're usually in big groups so that's probably why they have the teeth that they do to fight off any predators Uh, sometimes vultures or feral dogs, you know, bearded vultures. Remember, we talked about them just a while back. They're pretty amazing. Uh, probably picking off young uh, feral dogs, like you said. That's why they get all alarmed and, and worried because feral dogs are a big problem. But I did not see anything with Ethiopian wolves. Yeah. They say yeah. Ethiopian wolves, mm-hmm, just, mm-hmm. there's no conflict there. They just, they, they coexist. Yeah, they just typically coexist and they're not as uh, fearful of them. Um so yeah, it's just really it's been an interesting observation that has been repeated in the literature. Well, maybe we do, we'll do the Ethiopian wolves. We'll oh, do the Ethiopian I want wolves to. soon. Yeah, and then maybe we'll find out why. You know why? Maybe why? Um, all right, behaviors. Primate behaviors always fun. Oh, Chris, social, so, yeah, just everything. I need a gelata, a big, big book about their behavior. That's what I want to read on Christmas break. I get a little time to get extra reading in over the holiday season. And I want it to be all gelatas, all social behavior because, oh my gosh, they're just so cool. Uh, in general, they're diurnal. So they sleep at night on cliffs and ledges. And then at sunrise, they'll leave the cliffs or the rocky outlooks. And then they'll head down to the plateaus to graze for grass all day long. And the fun stuff is when it comes to their social behavior. 
So the cliff notes of the gelata social behavior is that they live in matriarchal societies, okay, and they have family units that will join together with other groups, which I'll talk about here more specifically, to form really large bands um, and or herds of hundreds of gelatas at a time. So with that being said, there's been a lot of research with the gelata social behavior. So I had a lot of fun cherry picking several different studies from many different authors across the world that are studying intricacies of just little dynamic behaviors that they're looking at. Uh, But in general, what they have found is that female gelatas will remain with their natal group. When males become mature, they will migrate out to try to take over their own breeding unit. Uh, And so the way it's described is they have what we call one male unit. So it's an OMU. And what that is, is a male with several females that are all related and their offspring. And other than that, there's also what we call all male units. So that's like a unit of all males that are typically younger and kind of in that mm-hmm. awkward late teenage, uh, not, 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 not real teens, but like, yeah, as far as growth yeah. and development goes, they can't quite get their own breeding group together. So they hang out for safety and for companionship and to also probably work out their own uh, dominance and stuff like that. Uh, but then the family units are, are pretty small. So they're either one male or all male. And then what happens is they hang out in what's called a band. So a band is like the next level uh, as far as social status goes, where that's several different reproductive units, whether it's one male or all male, hanging out and foraging in the area together. And those will mix together pretty well as needed. And then there's a herd, which consists of anywhere from 60 or more reproductive units with different bands coming in and out for short periods of time. So a herd is not as state, it's bigger than a band, but not as stable. And then even larger than that is what we call a community. And that's several bands coming together. They overlap in different areas um, and will still forage together, but they probably don't, you know, they're not going to like huddle together and sleep together at night or anything like that. So just a very, very complex, multi-level social structure for the gelata. Mm -hmm. And I was reading paper after paper. um, And I, like I said, I won't bore the listeners the details too much, but just about how how the relationship among the different units that's obviously very close because that's like their family unit they you know they intimately know those gelatas and um, they breed with them or they protect them because it's their young things like that but then as it gets a little bit bigger and becomes a band which is several reproductive units it's i think of like me and my neighborhood like yeah i know them and we interact and we're cool uh, I'd help, I'll help them out when I can, but you know, and then you, and then you have the herds, which I think of that as all, like the Southwest region of my city that I live in. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. We, you know, I, I might recognize somebody at the grocery store or something like that, but 
you know, definitely lots of interactions, but not a lot of like, I definitely have a lot of interaction with them, but I don't like know them that well. And then of course you have a community, which are huge, right? That's where you hear about or see several hundred gelatas all foraging together where, you know, individuals don't really know each other, uh, but are still interacting in these social ways and communicating all these really incredible things to one another, yet still maintaining their own individual family group. Just breathtakingly complex. So cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course with the own, with their own family units. So either the one male or so we'll, we'll use the one male, for example. I mean, that's pretty stable, especially on the female matriarchal side. And for the record, females run the, run the show. So who runs the world? Girls. They definitely Bodobos. run it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So the females definitely uh, are in charge. And so e- after a male might age out uh, for breeding, then they will signal that it's time for him to go and that they need another one. Uh, but still, there's a lot of dynamics going on with that. And how do they coordinate all of that? Just super, super fascinating. I mean, similar to other species of primates, there's a ton of um, aloe grooming, social grooming going on by members of the immediate one male group. So the family members, uh, grooming between males and females are really important to maintain the social stability of the group. And basically if a group is getting large, a family group is getting too large where a male can't, uh, groom and be attentive towards the females. A lot of times he'll be kicked out or the groups will separate, like divide and, um, partner up with, you know, take basically steal male from an all male unit. So we definitely know that as far as social affiliation and grooming goes, that's a really important part of their structure. But it's just very fascinating as far as the territories go to find all these separate bands and herds getting along um, when conditions are favorable. And granted, this is typically when the grass is green and there's an abundance of food. And so there, there's not much competition. And one of the evolutionary papers I was reading is that's what they were talking about as far as why all of these units can coexist to form bands, herds, communities, and so on and so forth peacefully and interact peacefully is probably because there's not a huge competition for resources because there's lots, especially in the, you know, in the wet season, there's a lot of grass to eat. So Mm -hmm. they don't have to be as territorial and fighting and things like that when you're t- talking about the complexity it makes me think of us right uh, how complex human yes. relationships are and i yeah. think that's yeah that's why i want mm. i want a book on them i don't even know if there is a book mm. i mean i've been reading lots of articles but yes it's, yeah it did it, it makes me and that's why i use my own like i was trying to picture like okay like who's my and i obviously know who my family unit is like who's yeah. my who's my band and who's my herd and Chris, yeah. you're part of my all of my yeah. units. Okay, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> we're definitely yes. We're we're all part of the big fa- same family group, defensive group, yeah, protecting everybody. But but you're right no, though. I, I could, you yeah, think yeah. about you know you think of our human relationships and our social mm-hmm. dynamics and all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, crazy. it is complex. It's very complex. Mm-hmm. It. But okay, vocalizations. We 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 opened with a small. Sounds like a. A small classroom of kids, like it just—it right. it was fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Well, and like learning about all these different family units and the reproductive units, and then of course uh, bands and herds and how they all hang out. 
it it was like shocking to me and I want to do some more digging on it, but it also makes a lot of sense is that gelatas have one of the most complex communication systems involving visual, tactical, and acoustic compared to any other primates. So the gelatas have over 30 different vocalizations and these vocalizations are very varied. So that's kind of a poor choice of words, but uh, they're unique in as far as their vocal repertoire goes for primates. It's number one, they're noisy and loud like we opened with, but Mm -hmm. the gelata has one of the most diverse repertoire vocalizations of any primates. And it's thought to be complex like and similar to that of humans. And so I was like, what? So, I, I mean, I had to do a little bit more dive, you know, d- deep dives with that because I always love when we talk about like orca communication, dolphin communication, that kind of thing. Um, but the gelata is, is, is incredible. And so I should note too is as far as vocalizations go, I mean, it's for everything. They vocalize for contact, reassurance, appeasement, um, socialization, ambivalence, aggression, defense. Uh, some calls are restricted to certain animals with higher status compared to those of others. They'll sit around and chatter with each other. Researchers have have documented now what it signifies and doesn't signify it. Of course, they haven't tweaked all that out. But just they're just very, very talkative. And the basic call of the gelata is called the wobble. And just in general, it's more complex than most primates. And so for instance, um, lip smacking, which actually is pretty, pretty common facial gesture amongst most primates. And it's used for like friendly interactions and to do it. It's just like how us humans would lip smack. We open your mouth and close it, uh, almost like, like you're like a type of speech, but gelatas are super unique when they lip smack because they also vocalize while lip smacking. And there was a study at the university of Michigan several years ago, but that basically found the rhythmic pattern of this lip smacking slash vocalization has similarities to human speech as far as the pacing and the syllables go. And so these researchers started kind of deep dive into gelatas and their linguistics And so a newer study just came out um, talking about the gelatas and their vocalizations as far as linguistic math. And this is a little bit above my pay grade. So uh, I'll try to explain the best that I can. But basically, when the um, gelatas are doing the wobble uh, vocalization or groans, months, things like that, just chatty. They're just very chatty species as they're, as they're plucking their grass with their most opposable thumb and index finger and just popping in their mouth. They're chatting away, clucking like a whole bunch of hens. And what researchers have observed with these geladas is as the number of individual calls in their vocal sequence increases, the duration of the calls tends to decrease. And this relationship actually has a term called Menzars law. And Menzars' law is it's a mathematical principle that states the longer a construct, the shorter its components. And in human language, 
we do this. I didn't know we did this, so I'll be looking for it now. But if a sentence is longer, it's typically comprised of shorter words. And observing this in the gelata vocalization was the first to report this in any other vocal species other than humans. Okay, so say that again. (laughs) (laughs) Hold on, hold on, hold on. on. Mm -hmm. Just so the listeners get it and I get it. So the longer the sentence is, the shorter of your choice of words. words. So your words will be a lot like it. It will be very short and not very long, unlike stupid, whatever, right? Exactly. Exactly. Now, that's crazy. It's insane. And the geladas, of course, are not using words like we use them, but they're using calls and wobbles and groans and months and different uh, over 30 different vocalizations that mean a whole bunch of different things you know reassurance appeasement aggression but when the calls are longer the pacing of it is shorter so and it's some mathematical thing that's i guess a linguistics specialty i don't know yeah okay (laughs) but it's it's it is fascinating it is it is fascinating and uh, also right these are these are relatives okay so uh, researchers just have a lot of interest in their vocal repertoire uh for evolutionary purposes for communication purposes and this is and and chris all this is just their vocalization. So as a primate species and living in these, you know, in these, of course, they have their smaller family unit, but living in these large herds and communities, they also use visual communication. You already, you talked about it too, where they show their big canines, but it's a little bit more uh, dramatic than that. Uh, The gelatas will actually flip their upper lip back onto their nostrils and then show their teeth and gums. Yeah. So, yeah, it's definitely a sight to be seen. Um, but, you know, they have tons of facial expressions just like and body postures just like us humans do to help communicate with one another. Tactile communication, of course, I already mentioned they do a lot of grooming. Um, there's a lot of pheromones and chemical communication going on, especially when a female is an estrus. So just like I said, I just when I was every paper I read, every article I read probably about I don't know. I just couldn't get enough of them. Six, seven, eight, which this time of the year I do not have time for. So don't tell my boss. <laughs> but uh, I couldn't get enough of it because it was just so, I mean, like I felt like, and I'm a nerd, so bear with me. But yes. I don't watch like the Kardashians or much reality TV. But when I was, when I'm reading these scientific articles, I felt like I was. You know what I mean? Like the social aspect of, of everything that they're doing from their vocal repertoires to, oh my gosh, like I said, the reproduction that I'm going to get to here in a second, it it reads like a juicy novel or watches like a kind of train wreck, juicy television show where you just, you know, you just can't get enough of it. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's like, it's the best kind of reality TV for this animal nerd was, was <laughs> learning this past week about gelatas. I'm, I yes, yes. Yeah. But I'm a nerd. So. <laughs> well, we knew that we knew that both yeah. of us. Yeah. We like to nerd out on it. Yep. All right. Reproduction. We've got to get to this yes. thing about the neck and how yeah. cra- another crazy I, aspect of these, these animals. These geladas just don't quit. That's what I'm saying. I mean, from their thumb to their grazing uh, to this hourglass skin, red skin patch that they have on their chest. So it, they're incredible. 
But in general, geladas do they don't have a specific mating season. Birth rate is typically higher during the rainy season when the grass is green, so there is that, but they can breed any time of year. When a gelada female is coming into estrus, so when she's receptive to a male, it's crazy. What happens is on her chest of that bare patch, the hourglass on her chest, red, it gets more red in color, so more pronounced, which we've seen that in other species during breeding, uh, during estrus or breeding season where they become, their colors become brightened. But not only does her red chest become more red and pronounced um, and grow larger, but also a red beading develops on her chest that's also known as a necklace. And this beading is fluid-filled blisters that give her this nickname of the bleeding heart baboon, which we know she's not a baboon, but the bleeding heart gelada. Because of these bumps that just make her chest really, really stand out. And I, I, I had to Google a picture of it and I must admit I was kind of blown out of the water uh, because it's just something I've never really seen before in a primate species. I, I of course know that with a lot of our primates, the females, their, um, their anal genital region will swell, um, during estrus, uh, becomes like larger and maybe a little bit more brightened in red color. But I had personally never seen that type of, um, skin change or physiological change to the skin, like anywhere else, but the vet, you know, the vaginal region. Uh, and so to see this on the chest was just, is just, wow. It's really, really mind blowing. And, and it was fun to read all the different descriptions of it. Some of them call them blisters. Some of them call them necklaces. Some of them, uh, one article suggests that it, uh, there's potentially, um, pheromones that, uh, are, maybe excreted from the, um, from the, the blisters, uh, in the skin, these fluid filled blisters, uh, and, and that, that the, you know, it helps the male recognize the female is an asterisk as he'll typically, um, sniff her, her anal genital region, but then also her chest as well. So, yeah, just incredible. Um, and researcher, uh, one of the papers I read, I think as I pulled up, there's one from 1957 and one from 1974, kind of dis- discussing some of this in the literature. And of course, we'll never know from an evolutionary point of why the geladas develop um, this reproductive, uh, why the females develop this rep- reproductive like strategy to, to either attract males or um, or as part of her pheromone release. But they do speculate since since the uh, they are grazers who spend most of their time in a squatted position or a sitting position grazing on the ground, uh, unlike other species of primates or baboons, uh, they're not able to show off their um, anal genital region with their swollen um, vaginal vulva area. And so the males can't see that it's the visual signals doesn't work on them in that region because well, there's in a squat position that, that, that part's hidden uh, um, on the ground. So that maybe that's where the chest came into play to help the males recognize um, when, uh, when the females were in estrus. But of course we don't know. Yeah. It's like we opened up with, it's one of the most unique 
very unique in the animal world. Yeah, it's, it's one yeah. Thing that I've 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 not seen anything close to that that wasn't near the genitals. That wasn't other things. Just leave it at that to keep it PG. But uh, yeah, it's it's bizarre. But it, like you said, they're sitting down most of the time, so maybe they evolved to think it through evolution. The ones that could display, hey, I'm in heat. They were the mm-hmm. ones that were having more babies. And right. so that just that just carried from generation to generation. Yeah, so, it's just, yeah, it's just incredible. Um, so, but yeah, and so when a female is an estrus and she's wearing her her red beaded necklace, I guess if you will, uh, <laughs> for lack of better terms. And mind you, it's not just her chest area that fills. I mean, she still has genital swelling visible um, as well, if, if, if that area is showing. But basically, yes, the male will approach her. He'll inspect her chest and her nether regions. And then if she is receptive, he'll copulate with her. And uh, and then once copulation occurs, the gestation length in the gelata is about five to six months. And females... As a primate, they typically give birth to just one infant at a time. And the neuro- the newborn is just darling. They have little red faces and they're covered in black hair. They weigh about one pound. Uh, and of course, the infant gelata is carried on its mama's belly for the first uh, several weeks to a month or so. And then thereafter, the infant travels on her back. You'll typically see a gelata infant traveling on its own so not on mama's back or belly um around five months old and uh the gelata mama's good mama she lactates the infant till it's about a year to a year and a half uh and so and as far as parenting goes in the primate community the the most parental care of course is responsible of the mom and then some of the females in the group uh, to help protect them and take care of them and ail groom them. Now there has been some, uh, research and observation of subordinate males in a reproductive unit and a family unit helping care for an infant when they're like six or seven months old. The overall role of the male um, caring for an offspring in the gelata family units is there's really not well understood and they need more of that studied, which I'm like, sign me up. I'll sit in my lawn chair and watch these guys graze all day. Yes, please. <laughs> um, but, but what they think is that when a, um, if a male is a subordinate male in a family group, because he is either younger and hasn't left yet, or on the flip side, he's an older male who was, has recently been replaced by a younger male and he he might decide that he doesn't want to actually go off to an all male unit. He'll stick with the family unit and be subordinate and not breed the females anymore. And, and that's where maybe he can be like more of a helper to like keep that role. Mm-hmm. And what's and of course another uh, reality TV show deep dive that I did about the gelata is that they they do once in a while practice um, infanticide. Uh, which will usually only happen when a male takes over um, for a breeding group. And if a female is pregnant with the other male um, or, and then, and then gives birth to 
you know, one that's not his own that some once in a while, it's not as prominent as in other primate species, but once in a while, um, they will, they will kill that infant. And so one of the thoughts is, is that if the father who's been kicked out sticks around, um, and you know, is like kind of a peacemaker that, um, that maybe he can keep his offspring alive longer. Mm. So, but it's interesting. Once again, they don't, they don't know a ton about it and, and, and the groups are typically very peaceful. So not, not a lot of that scene, but we're, you know, we're still learning and studying more about these guys. And like I said, it's, it's just really, um, you know, it's just really fascinating how uh, this, in this fission fusion society of how they have to make, you know, maintain all the complex relationships within their family unit and keep everybody happy, but then also mm-hmm. within the community at large. Yeah. So yeah, just, uh, mm-hmm. uh, really fascinating stuff. But then, um, as far as male and female maturity goes, uh, you're going to see, uh, males reach sexual maturity around four to five years of age, but it takes them a lot longer to, to main, to get a family unit to become the breeding male. in. so that might not happen until he's eight or 10 years old. And, uh, and then females will reach once again, sexual maturity around four to five, but, uh, they may not breed until they're a little bit older, um, depending. So, yeah. uh, yeah. and, yeah. and then when, it, and then in years when the grass is good, a female will produce, um, a one young each year, typically. Well, you and I just had a recent discussion on generation interval. You challenged I me <laughs> I and, did. uh, I, I came out on top. It's a rare, it's a rarity. It's a rarity. Angie usually always trumps me with that, but yeah, I mean, you know, you're looking at eight to 10 year generation interval, right? With this and species live in, you know, 20 to 30 years. I, it, the good news is they're not listed as endangered or threatened or vulnerable. They're least concerned, but there's only estimated 50 to 60,000 in the wild. Their numbers are thought to be declining. This crop damage, the, the grasslands, so that's why the indigenous peoples there being supported is so great. We need to keep uh, conservation efforts ongoing there. Uh, and they are protected uh, in Ethiopia. So, I mean, humans are their biggest threat. So, you know, keep our eyes on that part of the world. We're going to do the Ethiopian wolf here soon. Uh, before organization, real quick, organization tip of the week. Like I said earlier, it it all starts local. So support your local zoos. Uh, aquariums, gardens is one thing I was thinking of. We have world-renowned gardens near me in Hamilton, New Zealand. Us too here, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Florida. G- support a local effort. If we all do that, wherever you are listening, and, and I know, Angie and I know, we see where the downloads are coming from all across the planet. If we all can work together and conserve locally, it spreads, and, and that's how we're going to do it. So anyways, Organization of the Week. Yeah, I want to give a big shout out to African Wildlife Foundation. We've highlighted them here on the podcast before. They're a wonderful uh, wildlife nonprofit in Africa that, of course, fights for wildlife and the land that they live on to try to protect the land, protect the wildlife, and work with local communities uh, within the area. And then, of course, uh, work with NGOs internationally as well to help gather resources and research and information. And so the African Wildlife Foundation can be found at 
awf.org. And they have a wonderful website and they'll talk all about galatas and why we should care about them and what they are doing uh, to help protect them. Two of the main things right now that the AWF is doing to help protect gelatas in the wild is they're creating income alternatives. And so the AWF is working to establish new mechanisms for ensuring local communities' livelihoods. And one of them is their Simeon Mountain Cultural Tourism Project. It's improving the infrastructure and accommodations in and out around the national park so that people will want to come see them and bring money into the area. And increasing the revenue from community-owned and operated to tourism will reduce dependence on subsistence farming in the area. So as Chris opened with the podcast is we all need to get to Ethiopia and go see these guys. It'll help support them. And then secondly, the AWF is helping communities with holistic land use planning. So it's all about the people and the local people and local uh, conservation, as Chris, Chris mentioned. So AWF works with communities to enhance livelihoods, food security, and conservation through sustainable long-term land use planning. So uh, it's local, 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 local. And I really believe that um, the African Wildlife Foundation understand that, understands that and compiles a whole bunch of different resources and research and international and a global uh, kind of outreach to get that done. Well, Delissa, let us know how we did. Please. You know, on Instagram. <laughs> send uh, us Angie, more photos. More photos, yes. please. Send us photos and we'll, we'll if we if with your permission, if we can post them on social medias. But I know she'll be listening to this podcast. And you know, again, San Diego Zoo, my hometown zoo. I was there when I was a little kid, just there a few weeks back. Yeah, I mean, and, they deserve probably the biggest shout out this week because they helped yeah. inspire this whole podcast. And yes. like I said, a very and I I want to give them a big shout out personally because it's just so eye opening for me uh, as far as such, oh, such a cool species of primate. Wow, mm-hmm. just mind blowing. Yeah. So yeah. Thank you. Well, yeah, yeah. And just uh, just for the listeners, Angie and I have our list going into December. We've got some special ones coming, cold weather. Even though it's warm here in New Zealand, it's, it's still, whenever I think of Christmas, I think of snow. That's what I grew up with, even though here in Australia, New Zealand, we're at the beach. But we've got some great species coming your way, so stay tuned. Thank you, everyone. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you looking for a podcast your whole family can enjoy together? Uh-huh. Check out Culture Kids Podcast. Our adventures will ignite your curiosity for culture, traditions, languages, geography, and even pop culture with interviews from guests all over the world. Through each episode, we aim to help children become empathetic, creative leaders in their communities and help them see the beauty in our differences. And that's Culture Kids Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.